Presence your heart. Say amen. That was good. When I was young and growing up, April Fool's was a big deal. Probably it still is. I don't know. <laughs> it isn't so much for me anymore, I guess. The goal, of course, was to be the first to fool somebody, some poor soul who forgot it was April Fool's, right? Even better to embarrass a kid in front of a whole lot of other people. That takes another whole level. Like, He's strong. Your zip's down. And I'd turn many shades of red as I try to unobtrusively look. <laughs> April Fools and laughed boisterously. Of course, I made to look doubly foolish. First, regarding the possibility of a zipper issue. <laughs> Second, that I actually fell for the prank. So here's the issue no one likes to be seen as a fool. Or be made to look like a fool. Or to be thought of as a fool. We simply don't like to look foolish, right? And it starts young, in school, and that's why peer pressure is so powerful. Kids do all sorts of things just to appear cool and fit in. What we want is the approval of the people around us, and that's not bad in itself. We need to know how to get along with each other, but... What is bad is when the need for approval affects decisions that we make that become lifelong decisions. In our town, there were two Christian families, the Stroms and the Beckmans. My dad was pastor of the church, and Mr. Beckman was my Sunday school teacher, at least for part of that time, and uh, active in the church. To be one of the only Christians in a town where nobody else was much interested, was grounds for endless pranks and uh, teasing and nothing to do with April Fools. And it often turned to bullying, to belittle us for not fitting in. Now, here's the interesting thing. These guys were very much part of my life. In spite of their periodic meanness, I grew up with these guys from age four about to age 16. And I couldn't imagine any other way or with being with any other friends. The year that I was to start grade 11, we moved away, only about 100 miles or so, and I never saw most of them again. In the last 60 years, I have maybe seen two or three once or twice. What they tried to get me to do, and what seemed like such a struggle at the time, 
turned out to be nothing. They didn't care about me. It was part of a part of a moment of time. And I want to cry, this is sort of an aside, I want to cry when I hear of youth making life-changing decisions about drugs or sexual activity or sexual identity because of the pressure from kids who are also trying to find themselves. So judging whether I'm foolish or not from my peers or from my culture may really be the most foolish of all. Now, I can look back on my life, and I'm sure many of you can too, and see who really cared about me, enough to stick with me through thick and thin, enough to stick with me through good decisions and bad decisions. In my case, parents. Some of your case, you wouldn't have your parents sticking with you, and I know that because I know some of you quite well and some of your stories. Brother, my brother, my sisters, uncles and aunts. And as I got older, friends who cared enough to keep my best interests in mind, and uh, I'm thankful for them. But I guess what I'm saying is coming to the conclusion of whether a person is wise or foolish can only be be determined in the long term. And that leads to the subject that Steve's given me to start off this new series, Fools for Christ. And uh, I've made a title for myself, Whose Approval Matters to You Most? That's really what we all have to decide. Whose approval is it that we really want and need? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are and you reveal yourself to us as Father. You're the creator of everything, but you reveal to us yourself as Father and you sent your Son to die for us. And you sent your Holy Spirit to help us make good decisions. And it's something that we have to learn to do. We each have to do that journey ourselves. May we be encouragers of each other in that journey, in a world where there isn't a whole lot of encouragement, especially for Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. One day Jesus told a very thought-provoking story. We find it in Luke chapter 12. There was a man who owned a farm. It was a very productive farm, and the man prospered. And year after year, his fields produced wonderful crops. And one year, they were even better than usual. In fact, on that year, he filled his storage buildings, and there were still more crops to be harvested. What should he do? I'm sure that he sat down and thought about it and thought about his options, like should he give away the extra grain? Should he sell some and give a bunch of money to the poor. Jesus doesn't add any of that to the story, but in a story like this, those become the options. As life had unfolded for him up to that time, his was certainly a success story, and he felt good about it. And I'm sure many of his neighbors said things like, what a good farmer. What an example of the fruits of hard work. He's such a successful man. He's managed his farm so well and has lived his wife's life so wisely. You know, the young people around here should watch what he's doing and learn from his example. At any rate, here's what he concluded. Find it in verse 18. He said, I know what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I will have room enough to store all my grain and all my goods. And I will sit back and say to myself, self, 
You have plenty of good things stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds like a very common and a very fun plan, except for verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now that's scary. Not just that a person might have something like a heart attack in the prime of life and die in the night suddenly, but that God might have a totally different viewpoint, a different viewpoint than I have and the most of the people around me have about what is successful. When God says something like, you fool, or you are a fool, I would say that that person's in a pretty precarious position. Maybe he knows something that most people in our world are oblivious to. And in case we, the listeners, you and, and those listeners, who are listening to Jesus, and you and I didn't get the point, Jesus goes right on and says, yes. A person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not be rich towards God. Now, here's the interesting thing to think about. It's an interesting twist. Is it ever all right to be called a fool? Is it ever the smart thing to be seen as by others around us as foolish? Let me try to answer that question by sharing some stories. And you decide. You've got to decide for you. I've got to decide for me. We'll start with some from the Bible. Now, the Bible's full of stories like this. In fact, if you go through the Old Testament and New Testament and you see the, the people that God worked with, uh, most of them fit into this. But I'm going to Hebrews chapter 11 which gives a summary of a number of people who come from the Old Testament and who fit into this. We'll start at verse 1, because that kind of gives the foundation. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So think about that a minute. Doesn't that sound a tad foolish? To put my faith in a future that I can't see and just say, I, I know that God is leading me. He has a plan. He loves me. He has my best interest in mind. That's a, those are faith statements. Verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. And I, I like the New Living Translation. It says, God gave his approval to people in days of old because of their faith. God didn't give his approval to the hard-working rich farmer. But something about this way of life is good, and God approves. Verse 3. By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. So when we say we have faith in God, this is what God is. This is what he's like. This is who he is. This is who he um, gave his approval. The God who gives his approval is this God. God, the creator of all that there is. He's the God, the creator of me, of you and me. 
And what's implicit in this, and we don't have time to to, uh, develop it further, can I trust this great creator with my life? That's really the issue. That's a crucial question. Then Hebrews gives us a whole bunch of examples of people who did trust God. They weren't perfect people, and that makes me feel better. We come as sinners. You come as sinners, I come as a sinner. But they were people who trusted God. That's what he calls us to do. We don't have time to read them all. Each is highlighted for a different reason. So that's important for me to say to you. Each is highlighted for a different reason. They're not all to be the same. And uh, we'll start with Abel. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice. Now, Steve talked about Abel in his message last Sunday and talked about the heart matter. It was the heart matter that was the issue. Abel worshipped God from his heart, even when his brother opposed him. From Cain's point of view, Abel was a fool. Abel's faith somehow made Cain mad, and Cain decided to get rid of him. Now, I doubt whether this was the only occasion where it made him mad. It seems a pretty radical uh, solution if that's suddenly, he says, oh, I'm going to kill you. I think this was building for a while. That's my opinion. It doesn't say it in the Bible. There's lots that, that lead into and lead out of that aren't talked about in the Bible. And so he killed him. And Abel became the first person martyred for his faith. His relationship with God was more important than his relationship with a brother who gave him a rough time because of his spiritual faith. It was more important than his safety. He was a fool, all right, a fool for God because he put God first. By faith, Noah, being warned of things never yet seen, built an ark. Now, Noah and his family, I think, were poster people for the category of fools. There are two problems, it seems to me, that, were, that just kept coming up as issues. First of all was Noah's God. Now, let's just step back and we'll look at what Jesus said about Noah's culture. We find that in Luke 17, starting at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Now put that together with Genesis 6, where you have the whole story of the flood. We get a, a larger picture. So in Genesis 6, 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is full of, filled with violence. See, God gave Noah a message. And the people on his contemporaries went on with life anyway. They ignored the message. They enjoyed the good life, and they didn't want it to be interrupted. Who needs God? Maybe nobody needs God. Maybe there really is no God, at least the kind of God that Noah was talking about, the God that 
people have to answer to and be accountable to. So they live for themselves, just like usual, eating, drinking, partying, enjoying life. And that life brought them deeper and deeper into sin and selfishness and ultimately violence. We recognize some of the characteristics, don't we, from our culture. Doesn't mean everybody's violent, but it means everybody's living for themselves and and that becomes a way of solving problems and, and, and a way of life. So that, I'm sure, was based on the evidence we have, was one of the things that would bug the people a whole lot. The second one was the project. While he preached, he was building a boat where there was no water. Not just a boat, but a big, gigantic ship. Can't you hear the people? You're wasting your time, Noah. Get a real job. Do something, for yourse- do something with yourself. You're just a dreamer. And the years went by. And uh, from a human point of view, hey, they had a point. Nothing's happening except the boat's being built and Noah's preaching and sharing. Based on everything they knew, Noah and his family were fools. Of course, we know the rest of the story. God had a different viewpoint. It may have taken decades and decades and decades, 120 years, but the flood did come. They were fools. But they were fools for God. For God, fools in the eyes of the people around them. Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. You're going to do what, Abraham? Leave your fine home here in Mesopotamia and your good life and go where? You really don't know where? But you say you know God has a job for you? He's going to do what? Give you a new country and start a new nation? How do you know? And he and his wife and his nephew Lot and their servants, households, left. And the years went by, many years. They arrived amid experiences of challenge and hardship. He had followed God to start a new nation in a new land, and they didn't even have a deed to any part of that land. And he didn't have a son or anyone to carry on the family. And both he and Sarah lived further and further beyond their childbearing capacity. What a foolish man. What a foolish couple. They were fools for God because we know the rest of the story. Isaac was born, and over quite a lot of years, the nation was born. Now, there are many more people and many more stories. Each was called to do something different. All were part of the same program, however, preparing for the coming of a Savior. And you can go through the Old Testament and pick any of the, of the people that God was working with and see how, for the people around them, they were fools. So at the end of the chapter 11, the writer summarizes God's program like this. And I'm reading from the New uh, Living Translation. All of these people we have mentioned received God's approval because of their faith. 
yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had far better things in mind for us that would also benefit them. For they can't receive the price at the end of the race till we finish the race. So there was a whole bigger picture. It would take a while to fully parse this out. But even at the end of their lives, there would be still people who were accusing them of being foolish. But for them, by then, they had been involved in God's program long enough that they'd seen God at work. They knew he was at work and that he would finish the job. These kind of stories have continued all through the centuries. The call of God has always been, do you love me? With your whole heart and mind and strength and soul. And will you put me first? Can we be in a relationship? Will you be part of my program? And right from the beginning until now, it's always the same question. Will we live for him and put him first? And to anyone who doesn't have faith, that's foolish. We've just celebrated Easter and we've celebrated the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he calls us to accept his redemption. The salvation that Jesus procured with his death the new life that he provided through his resurrection. So he calls us to accept his redemption and follow his lordship. It's quite simple when you look at it that way. Because he has a program for us to participate in, just as the people of faith from the Old Testament. When we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, we have a commission. We're given a commission mission to put him first, live for him, and participate in his present program, which is preparing the world for the second coming, which is inviting people to be part of it, like Noah did the inviting. And unfortunately, many people who take this seriously are still seen as fools. And I know that many of you get that from your families. You're seen as a fool because you want to follow Christ. Our home group meets at Richard and Ingrid's, just finishing a very, very challenging study, like a really a challenging one. It's a wonderful study, if you don't mind being challenged. The book Crazy Love by Francis Chan. And he makes a case all through the book and develops it in various ways that God loves us freely, generously, even when we don't deserve it. For when we were sinners, the New Testament says, Christ died for us, when we were sinners, when we weren't even interested, when we didn't care about it, when we hadn't leaned toward him, he loved us and died for us. And in return, he invites us to love him, to love him with all our being, and to seek his will and his direction, even when it looks totally foolish to the people around us. So whose approval matters to you the most, matters to me the most? At the end of the book, he shares some stories, which now are contemporary stories, uh, to inspire us along the way. I'll share two or three of his and, and a couple more. Rachel Saint grew up as the only girl in a family with seven brothers, seven boys and one girl. 
And with a family like that, they knew what it was to face hardship and sharing, and that's how life was for them. When Rachel was 18, a kind, wealthy, elderly woman invited her to accompany her on a trip to Europe. She loved the spirit of Rachel and offered her that if she would uh, become her lifelong companion, this lady was quite old by then, she would make Rachel her heiress if she would be her companion for the rest of her life and take care of her. Rachel contemplated the generous offer but, but felt that God intended for her something more than just a comfortable life. And I'm sure many around her called her a fool for turning down such an offer. For the next 12 years, she worked at a recovery house for alcoholics. Then she enrolled in linguistics and uh, went to South America with Wycliffe. She felt called to work with the Warani Indians in Ecuador. This tribe was especially known for their culture of revenge and murder. That's kind of what they lived for. And if anybody attempted to fight back, it was always revenge and murder. They were great at murdering. No one had been able to penetrate into that tribe, which was deep in the jungle. Her brother, Nate, was a missionary pilot with Missionary Aviation Fellowship, MAF. And he, along with four other missionaries, attempted to make contact and and they worked quite a, quite a while at it. They finally did make contact and uh, felt that they had moved it to where they could now land and make physical contact. And when they finally did, all five of them were viciously murdered. And uh, this happened when I was just in Bible school, and I remember just how shocking that was that five missionaries had been, been murdered, executed uh, there in Ecuador. And here's the part that's surprising. It has to be God's call. This only sharpened Rachel's desire to tell the people about the love of Christ. During this time, she was introduced to a Warani woman who had come out of the jungle to work. I believe, if I remember the story right, for an oil company, because there was a lot of oil in that area, and oil companies really wanted to get in and be able to do some... uh, uh, work in the, in the jungles, and this tribe was one of the ones in the way that always was a problem to them. So for the next few years, uh, Rachel studied the language and witnessed to Deyuma, the lady, and patiently waited for the right time to go. The right came, time came, and she, along with her brother Nate's widow, and Elizabeth Elliot, who was uh, also a widow from that murderous time, went to live with the Rorani people. And she lived there till her death. During that time, one after the other after the other came to place their faith in Jesus. Their lives and their culture of revenge and murder was totally transformed. Transformed by what they called God's carvings, which were the words of the Bible. And they just, that's how they described it, God's carvings. And uh, this warning people became her family. They gave her the name Mimu, which means star. She translated the New Testament into their language. And at the end of the life of her life was buried there in the jungle with, quote, her people. Um, She, one of the first converts, or several of the first converts, were some of the men who were in that murderous rampage that killed 
husbands and friends. She may have been called a fool a lot of times maybe in her life, but she was a fool for Christ. Christ's approval mattered more to her than the approvals of those who called her fool. Another story Francis Chan tells in Crazy Love is about Jamie Lang. When she was 23, she withdrew $2,000 from her savings account and flew from the United States to uh, Tanzania. Uh, and uh, she planned to stay till she ran out of money. She was overwhelmed by the need around her, began praying that God would allow her to make a radical difference in at least one person's life. About, about six months later, she met and saw an eight-year-old girl at church carrying a baby on her back. She learned that the baby's mother was dying from AIDS and that she was too weak to care for the baby. So Jamie began to buy formula for the little guy and to, bri- to, pro- to provide him with the nutrition that he so badly needed because he was about half the size of a normal baby that age. And, and during that time, Jamie fell in love with little Junio. Junio's mother did die from her AIDS infection, but before she died, she came to Jamie and said, I've heard how you've been taking care of my son. I've never seen such love. I want to be saved. After the mother died, she began, Jamie began to research the possibility of adopting. She says that even she herself wondered if she was being foolish. She was barely 24 years old, white, American, actually thinking of adopting. And uh, they didn't allow outsiders to adopt, but she discovered that she had lived there long enough to establish residency and was able to adopt. When she finally went back home to America, it was with her and her young son. She later married, had a little girl, and began to study linguistics. Then she and her husband and two children went back to Tanzania and this time to work with Wycliffe, translating the Bible into the local language. Fools? If so, fools for Christ. Francis uh, Francis Chan says that if you met Lucy at his church, you'd probably think that she was somebody's innocent grandma, the kind of woman who will come and give a big hug and introduce herself and was a great person for welcoming people into the church. You'd never guess that Lucy was an ex-prostitute, In her teens and early 20s, drugs and prostitution dominated her life. She's in church today because an older Christian woman felt a call to reach out to prostitutes, to that prostitute community there in Southern California, years before. And I was thinking, did that lady's family and friends think that she was a fool for taking the risks she took to reach out to that community? I don't know. But one young prostitute, Lucy, met Jesus, and her life was completely transformed. Almost 40 years later, now, Lucy still lives in the same area of the city, carrying on the same work as her mentor. And uh, Frances says that she consistently opens her home to young women caught in that life, and it's common knowledge on the street that if you need anything, you can come to Lucy's house. She doesn't have a lot, but her home is always open, so prostitutes, pimps, drug users, dealers, anyone else that people avoid, Lucy invites them, and this is her way of loving people who are in the desperate need that she was in years before, but experienced the hope and love that uh, Jesus gives. 
fool for Christ? Someone I admire is Russell Stendhal. In 1983, his family received this letter. They received, it said, Senores Familia Stendhal, the accompanying photo proves that your son is still alive. This is your last warning. We demand 12 million pesos, am I saying that right? <laughs> Uh, by December 26, 1983, or we'll kill your son. Los Capitores. The terror had begun on August 14th, four months earlier. He was an American bush pilot. Russell Stendhal, in routine business, landed his plane in a remote area in a, in a Colombian village. Shortly after he landed, gunfire exploded throughout the town, and within minutes, he was captured and began his... Uh, 142-day ordeal as a captive of the guerrillas who said, we want ransom or we kill you. That became news around the world. Some of you may remember it. I do. The guerrilla, the guerrilla fighters explained that this was a kidnapping for ransom and that he would be held until payment was made. And so he was held at gunpoint deep in the jungle and with little else to occupy his time, he began to write. He told the story of his life, and then he kept a record of the experience that he had in the guerrilla camp. And he began to develop relationships with the guerrillas who wondered what he was doing. And his book actually became a bridge to the men who held him. Um, over the years, well, he was finally let go. That's a miracle in itself. You have to read the book to, uh, to get that whole story. I think his first book was uh, captured, no, anyway, it, it was him capturing the captors by his relationship. Um, and so over the years, because of that, and because of the in the, that God, he developed relationships with government leaders, paramilitary, paramilitary leaders in Colombia, and the guerrillas, that's three camps of people who are all fighting and, uh, you know, just terrorizing the people of Colombia. Many, many hundreds and thousands were killed, have been killed over the uh, 40, 50 years since that all started. He's been kidnapped five times. Each time he's been an opportunity to develop more relationships, which he really got good at. <laughs> and uh, he does, has, over those 40 years, done a lot of flying and drops uh, parachutes with you know, packets of things for the people, usually with a radio uh, tuned to a Christian station nearby, which he has helped to uh, put up a lot of those stations. And God's done amazing things through that bush pilot who totally committed himself to Jesus. But when you read of some of the dangers he, put on, put, he put, has been put in, and I've read all three of his books, I was going to bring the last one up and show it to you. Um, the dangers he's put himself in and sometimes the dangers he's put his family in, many would call him a fool for continuing on. What he was? A fool for Christ. Last week, Oren and I attended a, a breakfast for pastors at Regent Christian Academy up in Surrey. They do this each year to kind of introduce their school to pastors. I think I was there a couple of years ago. Um, that a number of our families here send their kids to that school. Now, I didn't know it beforehand, but the speaker was Phil Hills. 
Phil in 1990s, about 1993 to 2000, was associate pastor with me when we planted a church in Sardis. He was a school principal back then and with a desire to do some pastoring and preaching. He, when I resigned, he resigned and he uh, became part of the Association of Christian Schools and now is the executive director of Association of Christian Schools International. So he's done a lot of traveling. In fact, he said that he's been to all five continents. He shared a number of amazing stories, and there's one about his recent trip to uh, China that captured my imagination. He said that, in the, as we know, the Great Commission says, Jesus commanded his followers to preach and share the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, and into Judea and Samaria, each a little bit further, and unto the ends of the earth. Well, he said the Chinese Christians that he visited and, and uh, got to know who mostly live in house churches, believe that they are the ends of the earth that is spoken of in that passage. And they have a vision to take the gospel now that has so changed their lives, though they still live in a communist country, and in some areas they don't have any freedom at all, and in some areas they have quite a lot of freedom. One thing they've been given is freedom to travel that they didn't have before. And so they have a vision to take the gospel back through the world, back toward Jerusalem, to where it originated. That's what they feel a vision is that God's given them, that we're at the end of times, and now the, the a missionary movement that they will be very much part of. So they have a vision to send out 20,000 missionaries uh, into the world on the way back. The difference, of course, is that they're not privileged, like us Westerners with uh, need of support and getting support and tax breaks and the various things that have helped our missionary endeavor to take place over the years. But what they're doing is seeking willing couples who will leave their homes in China, travel, seek God for a place to stop and uh, settle and share the gospel there and trust God to supply their needs. 20,000 couples heading out across the world like this. Is that foolish or what? Kind of a sidebar is that uh, Chinese come from an honor-shame uh, culture, like a lot of the Easterners do. And many people believe that God is specifically raising up the Chinese for the next missionary movement because uh, among Islam, among Hindus, there's a number of, you know, maybe almost most of the people in the world live under that honor shame. You know, we hear of honor killings and shame is such a thing. Well, the Chinese understand that. They understand that culture and are able to settle in some of these areas and, and carry out a mission that we, we just simply don't understand their way of thinking and they don't understand our way of thinking. Our culture is very individualistic and operates in terms of guilt. And uh, so, Phil kind of concluded with in talking about the love of Jesus and sharing the love of Jesus. The world changes when Christians love their enemies, not just when they're nice people. God's call, he said, is to give up our rights to serve our enemies and love them. Now, some of you may be called to another culture or country. Not everybody will, for sure. God's call is individual. And it's a call for his purposes. 
as we got close to the end, we're getting close to the end of crazy love, and last week we talked at length of what it is to love God practically and love our neighbors as herself right here and now. Richard ex- expressed the challenge that he had heard or was facing as we looked at that last lesson. He said, do I ever get up and get ready for church by praying, what will you have for me today, Lord? Can I or should I go 15 minutes early to welcome people and look for new people to welcome? Maybe there'll be a visitor who needs, uh, who's searching and needs befriending. Would there be somebody possible who walks in the door and they're struggling and I can sense that and, and pray for them and encourage them? Preparing for a meeting with those heading up greeting and coffee and uh, ushering, uh, just kind of a starting meeting to see how we can work together to be more welcoming and to help each other. And I came across an article, 20 Ways to Welcome People to Church. Here's two of them, not 20. (laughs) Every church member, you, is a host and not a guest. Now, some of you are guests because this is your first or second or third time. So we've got guests here. And second, treat visitors as guests of God, not strangers. We've been doing some long overdue renovations in the church and fixing it up, and, uh, and that's so good to make it more inviting and welcoming. But that by itself won't touch people's lives, and we know that. Um, as one person said, loving unbelievers the way Jesus did is the most overlooking key to growing a church. He goes on, the command to love is the most repeated command in the New Testament, appearing at least 55 times. So what is God asking you to do? It's going to vary. See, that's it. You've got to decide prayerfully between you and God, what is he wanting you to do in carrying out his program. How can you and I show that we love him? And how can you and I show that we love our neighbors, as he said we're to do? And all who come through our doors, even some who are checking out what it means to follow Jesus. In some cases, we may feel like fools for always thinking about how we're carrying out God's purposes. Why can't you think about something else? Get ahead, you know. In some cases, we're called fools for following Jesus. And in in the end, it comes down to whose approval matters to me the most. God or the people around us.